Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden interviews Doug Henderson, author of The Cleveland Heights LGBTQ Fantasy and Role-Playing Club. They discuss the challenges of writing characters coming from different perspectives on queer identity and how it all fits into the composition of a narrative. Plus, Lou Barrett of Purple Palm Press joins us to discuss the operation of an independent publisher focused on queer lives. All of this and more today on Lines from Loganberry. Doug Henderson won the 2019 Penn Robert Dow Short Story Prize for Emerging Writers and made his short story debut in the Iowa Review. For the 2019 Penn Robert Dow Prize, Two of the jury members were Daniel Evans and Carmen Maria Mikado. And so in case you didn't know it, that's a really big deal to be selected by those two uh, giants of the, of the short story genre. Henderson grew up in Barberton, Ohio. He's a graduate of Kent State University. He received his MFA from University of San Francisco. And he now lives in San Francisco in the Castro District with his husband and his two children, and as he says, a large collection of role-playing games. Doug Henderson, welcome to Loganberry. Thank you. We are going to start out by having you read from the Cleveland Heights LGBTQ Sci-Fi and Fantasy Role-Playing Club. So if you could take it from page 103. All right. I want to be straight up with you, Albert said. I don't want it to be weird or awkward every time we hang out because you don't know if I'm into you or not. I mean, I like you. I think you're cool and you're funny, but I have a boyfriend who I like a lot, obviously. So my hope is that you and I can be friends because to be honest, I need friends. Albert laughed, but Ben wasn't sure if he was trying to lighten the mood or if that moment of self-realization was actually funny to Albert. Friends. The word was a poisoned apple and Ben didn't know if he should take a bite. Ben sat up and swung his legs over the other side of the bed. If he were honest with himself, he never truly thought he and Albert would ever be anything more than friends. He hoped for it, sure, but he knew Albert was out of his league and that he and Jeff were dating anyway. Ben began to relax. Being friends didn't feel like a concession. It felt like the jackpot. Albert asked, so what do you think? Is that something that makes sense? Sure. Ben climbed out of the waterbed. He thought he'd been gutted, but he was surprised when his guts came with him. It's not like you're all bad anyway. Ben was surprised by how much anger came out with each word, and he hoped Albert couldn't hear it. I mean, you're from Detroit, after all. Thank you so much. I love that passage. Um, so your book has actually received a lot of publicity here in the Cleveland area. It was the Cleveland Heights Observer that I thought got it best when they reviewed your book and gave a synopsis. As it turns out, the author of that article was Sarah West, who apparently grew up with you and used to hang out with you in Coventry. I love that in her 
author's, I'm sorry, in her writer's synopsis at the bottom, she said that she's never finished a D&D game. So she's, she's, she's your friend, but she has walked out on these games, apparently her entire sure. life. <laughs> so let's read how Sarah describes your book. Like what is the LGBTQ sci-fi and role-playing club about? This is what she says. Set in the present day, the novel follows protagonist Ben, an awkward, nerdy young man who earns a living selling thrift on eBay and revels in nostalgia for the cultural milieu of his late childhood and adolescence. He suffers through unrequited love, plummeting self-esteem, and the isolation that comes from what Henderson describes as never seeing yourself as an included person, as a represented person in American gay cultural life. The role-playing club Ben joins at Read More Comics, which is in Coventry in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and games to try to ease his social anxiety. A motley crew of queer-identifying men and women provides him with a means to connect with young individuals who are on similar paths of self-discovery and maturation. So when I read Sarah's description of your book, I thought that hit it on the head. Mm, Um, Me too. I was, I was wondering, like, do you have anything to add to that? Like, what, what would you say about what's your own synopsis of the book? Yeah, I think that, I think she did a really good job. I don't know how I can, <laughs> but I think that, yes, it is very much the seed of the book. The, the initial inspiration for the book was to write about sort of queer characters that I was not seeing, um, that I felt were everywhere. I feel like there are just tons of gay nerds, basically, and that gaming and fandom is very queer to me and I was not seeing that. And then I also felt that like sort of indie music scenes were very queer. Like there were queer punk and metal scenes that I was not really seeing represented. So the initial seed of this book was this romance between Ben and Albert, like a, a D&D nerd and a, a heavy metal nerd. That was what I really wanted to see and write about. So that was sort of the initial uh, kernel for, for the book. It's beautiful. And so, you know, this romance between a D&D nerd and a metal nerd, and they both happen to be queer, two guys. So as a bookseller in Loganberry, I spent a lot of time with the romance genre, listening to mm-hmm. indie balls with the romance genre. And over this time, I've learned that romance is, it's a very specific thing. So mm-hmm. for a romance book, there is, well, first of all, it's a love story. But then there's no trauma mm-hmm. in that the shenanigans, what drives the plot is a comedy of errors and miscommunications. Nobody gets shot by the police. Nobody dies of cancer. It's trauma-free. And sort of the, the promise of romance is that it has a happy ending. Mm. Things work out. And like literally, if you can't fit that format, then you're not really in the romance genre. Mm. So when I read your novel, I was like, yeah, this is, this is pretty much a traditional romance. And that's why I loved it. So what I want to ask you is, what led you to write a traditional romance for a queer couple? I, you know, honestly, it was just sort of the challenge of it and the fun of it. It was just a, a space that I wanted to explore. Um, and it's mashed up. You know, there's all kinds of other elements and it's layered with other things going on. And yeah, I, I think I had, hadn't really seen it. I think this is all evolving. You know, this book took a long time to write. I think it took me seven years. And over that process, of course, so many other books and stories have come out. And I think this whole thing is changing. 
like Schitt's Creek has come out. I think there's a similar kind of feel or vibe in that show. Yeah, so that was really it. I just wanted to explore that space. I wanted to write about the romance between those kind of offbeat characters that we don't see, um, but that I certainly was familiar with. Well, you know, what still makes it, um, even within today's context of books that are being published, what makes it unique is that it's adult. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that there's been a fair amount of YA novels that have come out that hmm. have done their romance treatment, but this one is like definitely adults, and I hope that it's mostly adults listening to right now. I mean, there's a green tentacle dildo, right? Yes. So <laughs> it's not teens. <laughs> which, is a, which is a thing that exists. I read there's like a whole scene of these people who make these with various different, I don't know, um, features. Um, and that to me was very interesting. I was like, oh, my characters, they could really get into this. And so I kind and, of- And they did. <laughs> <laughs> I follow so many writers on Goodreads and writers always say, do not read your stuff on Goodreads because it'll drive you absolutely crazy. But I do read Goodreads a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, what I saw on Goodreads with your book is that a lot of people hate Mooningham, hate the character Mooningham. I know a lot, the book was released on Wednesday, just this past Wednesday. So a lot of you probably haven't read it yet. Um, so, you know, Mooningham is a queer male character, but the thing is he's, he's atypical because he's a big dude. He's really tall. He's really strong. He's really athletic and he works in investment banking and he totally has his act together. He knows exactly what he wants to do in career and he wants to make money. I, I actually love this character because not to give too much away, you see the sacrifices that he has to make based on his queerness. Hmm. So what, for like all these people on Goodreads who don't like Mooningham, I want to ask you, like, what did you want people to feel about that character? Like, what kind of sympathy did you want to draw for him? Yeah, I think that, so I also love Mooningham. I mean, I love these characters, but there's a special place in my heart for Mooningham um, and for Huey, who people will meet as well. And them together, I, th- I just love them. So Mooningham's sort of story and his arc and kind of his burden is that he's, his life is very compartmentalized. And I think that that is something that a lot of queer people suffer through um, because they can't be fully out everywhere in their lives. They can't really be who they are everywhere they go. And I think that that has, like you said, that has sacrifices. There are certain trade-offs. But to really, you know, become his, his full self, really have this full relationship with Huey, really, you know, live his life, he's got to kind of break through that compartmentalization. Um, and that's sort of what his arc is about. I also didn't want to shy away from telling a coming out story. I knew that I, I wanted to like veer away from certain typical queer tropes that we always read about. And so I thought was well, sort of what was a different kind of coming out story. Um, I think coming out later in life, we don't see so often. And this kind of way in which people may have to come out all the time, like are constantly having to come out because you don't, they don't immediately read as queer or something. And they may get trapped in some type of a compartment if they don't just initially come out. Is this, is this making sense? Yeah, it does. Like it, it's actually, it's making a lot of sense to me because I got a chance to read the book because almost all of the um, major characters, like if your book were a Netflix series, 
like it would be one of those multi-person dramas. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, Ben is the main character, but like everybody else has a pretty full character arc as well. Like Celeste's coming out story, it's, it was actually incredibly gentle. Like it was mm -hmm. just disconnected from people. And not like you described it like not, I should let you talk about your own book. So Celeste has a very different transition story. Also was very sort of intentional. I wanted to show someone who was very much post-transition, who's already living her life as who she wants to be. And her main concerns are really just getting through her day, being herself, maintaining her role-playing club, making this game as interesting for her players as possible. You know, there is some chatter from her family and, you know, she has a hard time. She can't really go back home. She's not really ready yet. Yeah, I wanted something light and gentle and was really more about just being and just let her just be a, a person in her, her world, you know, if that makes sense. It does. And then I would describe Ben's coming out as incidental. <laughs> like, yeah. like, oh, I took out the garbage. I'm also gay. And then, you know, it's, it was very, <laughs> I mean, how would you describe Ben's coming out? Yeah, I don't think it was a surprise for anyone. And it was like, yeah, let's, let's just keep going. Thanks, Ben, for letting us know. <laughs> but <laughs> Like, I really appreciated that it, yeah, just uh, different ways of coming out. That was a really, it was a beautiful touch. Let's do a little bit of craft talk. Okay. There is the kiss-in scene that happens at O'Malley's Bar on Coventry Road in Cleveland Heights, which is characterized and was, in fact, just a very traditional Irish pub. Mm. Not the play, kind of place that one would think would be welcoming to queer people at all. Mm. But uh, Mooningham, sort of in defense of Huey, it's very, actually very chivalrous, is going to stage a kissin' at the bar. Mm. I found the buildup and the scene itself absolutely terrifying i was just like like it was the only thing that was maybe almost traumatic to me i was like oh my mm -hmm. god i don't see this going well mm -hmm. um so tell us like what writing techniques you use to build that level of tension yeah i really love this question but that is the most difficult thing that i've ever written ever in my like my very short but my writing life was the technical challenge of it. I knew that I wanted the scene where all the storylines were going to come together. I knew we were going to have one place and have all of the points of view characters sort of shifting around. I knew that it was just going to... I'm really glad that you found it so stressful because that was kind of what I wanted out of it for the reader. Yeah, so I dragged my feet on writing it for a very long time. It existed as just a couple pages for the longest time. And I don't know why. I think emotionally it was very hard too. I knew that this is where Ben and Albert were gonna have their first kiss. Um, and so that was very, I think, heightened too. I don't wanna give too much away for people who haven't read it yet. <laughs> There's some other characters that kind of come in and intersect at this moment too. It was just very, very challenging. I went to my husband's uh, high school reunion and he went to high school in a prep school on the East Coast. And um, I met another writer there who writes like young adult Star Wars novelizations and um, was fairly prolific in that kind of area. And so I was talking to him about how I have this scene and I just can't get through it. And he said, oh, you know, when I'm stuck like that, I just draw it. He was like, just draw the location, put, you know, mark where the characters are and where they're going to move and, you know, map it out. And I was like, that's amazing. So when we went back home, I drew it out. I drew the bar and like, here's the bar and here's where the jukebox is and here's where these people are going to be standing. And here's where they're going to come in. And so I mapped it all out and that totally 
broke me <laughs> through it. You're looking like Faberlast. I mean, it's amazing. Keep going because I, I think that was a stress. It's just like, again, not ruining it for people. Like who's blocking the door? Who's in that corner? Like who's over there at the bar? Wait a second. Where did that person go? You know, it was like, it was very, like it was actually, you were, it was very physical. Uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but it gets physical too. So. <laughs> That's uh, the description was very physical. Like I could, I could see, like I could see the bar. Cool. Actually, I we didn't plan on this, but since we're still kind of talking about the craft thing, so in in my Goodreads review of your book, I said that I thought that the structure between like what's happening in real life and the fantasy world of the game. That for me, it was very much like Margaret Atwood's Blind Assassin, which a lot of people haven't read. But like, there's there's like the story that's going on, but then there's the real life that's going on. Mm-hmm. So how did you work on, because to me, that seemed like very tough about like mm-hmm. instilling this fantasy world in there, which is totally relevant to the plot. Like it's like, it needs to be there. And then also you're trying to explain it to people like me who haven't, you, who haven't done D&D. So how did you work on right. that? Yeah, it was also a challenge. It's a lot of work to write a novel and there's a lot of revision. Writing is really a lot of rewriting. Um, so there's a, a lot of it happens, you know, just through crafting it, through revision, through making little changes here and there to mapping things out. I do a lot of drafting, a lot of outlining. I have book, like notebooks and notebooks full of outlines um, and just sort of mapping how things are going to line up and where. And then just making tweaks. I knew from the very beginning that the two worlds were going to intertwine and that the relationship between Ben and Albert would get to a point where I just couldn't sustain it and that everything would break. Um, The two worlds would intersect so much that would break everything. Um, Not to give too much away to people who haven't read it, but uh, it gets too too much. It's too much. It's too close together. Ben can't separate it anymore and he can't. It just breaks. You said you're an outliner. Actually, that's pretty important Mm. for people Mm. out there. Um, writing novel. So you're an outliner. That's actually something for people to know. Did you happen to have a beta reader who knew nothing about Dungeons and Dragons? Because I know nothing about it, but I felt like I kind of got it. Yeah. So I have a very close friend, Melanie Same, who is in the acknowledgments, who has read every version, every draft of this book, even when it was like 90 pages, when it was like very barely fleshed out and has always asked for more. And that really helped encourage me to like continue to pursue this book. And yeah, and so there, Huey is also another way into this game, I think, for, for, for outsiders. Because he enters the game, has no idea how to play it, and plays it pretty, I think, hilariously. And, or to the other players' chagrin, I think. But. Absolutely, right? Because yeah. I come in as your reader who doesn't know um, Dungeons & Dragons through Huey. Because Huey's right. like, what are you doing? Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to be Wonder Woman. And they're like, what? What? <laughs> That's that. Oh my God. That was actually a great technique to have like a clueless character to help your clueless readers. Okay. So tell me about a lot of people in this community, like in Cleveland Heights um, and where Logan Berry is located, which is in Shaker Heights. And I guess it's obviously tied to where I work, which is at Logan Berry. Like a lot of people are considering like MFA programs. Okay. You, what do you think you took out of your MFA program and how do you think balancing the cost versus Mm. what you learned and what you had access to? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I think it definitely worked for me. Um, I 
the early drafts of this book were developed in my MFA program. A lot of the relationships that I developed in the writing world were through the MFA program. KM Sonline and Lori Oslin, who blurbed this book, were workshop leaders of mine who really encouraged me. And I think even outside of the classroom, their advice really helped me. I think that you still have to put in the work. And I think that, you know, in my graduating class, I think that there are maybe only two or three of us who are getting work out there at this point. But I think that statistically is very accurate. I think that maybe only after like five years, maybe I don't, there's that small percentage of people that are still writing. But of course, people take MFAs and go on, be, go on to do all kinds of, you know, different things. Editing. I know people who are copy editing and that type of thing too. So I think that you, it's like anything, you'll get out of it what you can put into it, you know. And I think that it's more than coming out of it with a body of work. I think you got to think about the relationships and those things that you're going to try to get out of it as well. But I definitely encourage people. And then, you know, I did not see this inside of your biography. When did you depart from Northern Ohio? Ah. You graduated from Barberton. Yes. You went to Kent. Yes. And then I graduated from Kent in 99. So then I moved to San Francisco in 99, and then I moved to Tokyo in 2001. I lived in Tokyo for three years, and then I moved back in 2000, end of 2004, and I lived in Cleveland for a couple more years, and then in 2006, I moved back to San Francisco, and I've been here ever since. So. Wonderful. I survived one last winter in Cleveland, and then I was like, nah, it's back to San Francisco for me. We can all relate to that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, this is what I'm loving, talking about uh, the queer queerness and transforming the world. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what I love with clothes now. Mm-hmm. I find non-binary clothing so liberating. Yeah, totally, of course. Completely straight woman. Like, I love putting on a suit and a tie. Like, oh, I really think that it's perfectly normal for me to do that now. Like, I can put on some vendors and... I think, I think it's just going to be better for everybody. Yeah, right? And not just Harry Styles. Like, any, any man can wear a dress or, like, some blouse. It's whatever, you know? Well, Doug, that pretty much finishes up. Thank you. Oh, so thank you. It's really been a blessing and an honor. Thank you so much. This book so closely and coming up with these awesome questions. Thank you. I loved your book. Like, I'm a big romance reader, and I just absolutely loved it. Author and publisher Lou Barrett of Purple Prom Press, whose motto is eliminating the single story of queerness. Purple Prom Press publishes the Pen Dive series, Recording Corona, Quarantine Experiences in the Midwest, and the breakup book, Essays on Queer Breakups. So Lou Barrett, welcome as always to Loganberry Books. I have to tell you um, a quick story about my my first encounter with you. You weren't present. I started at Loganberry three years ago. And so when I came on to work here, the guy who had my job before me, his name was Paul, and he was the local voices manager. And so he was like walking me through the whole process of local voices and supporting local authors. He was like showing me the current books and he put his hand on pen dive and he said, he said something like, this is good. Take care of this one. Really? Yes. Yes. Oh, he said that. That's so nice. And he just last week, I just came to visit because he doesn't live in Cleveland mm-hmm. anymore. And 
I said, Paul, guess who's doing well? He's like, who? I was like, Lou Barrett. He's like, wow, really? I'm like, yeah. And another colleague of mine said, well, why don't you have her books on display? And I was like, cause she's sold <laughs> You're a great success story for us. Thank you. you really, really are. That, that means a lot. Thank you so much. Okay. Purple Palm Press. Tell us like, why do you publish books about dating and relationships in the queer community? When I originally started Purple Palm Press, I wasn't sure of the direction I wanted to take. I knew that I wanted to publish books by queer people for queer people. And that was, it was really broad. (laughs) And then it was about a year in that I started figuring out, learning more about the publishing industry and started figuring out that I needed to have more of a clear focus. And when I was in my teens and early 20s, I considered getting into sexual health education because I was really passionate about it, kind of as a result of my school being an abstinence-only model. And (laughs) I don't know the statistics now, but I know at the time, I I did research at the time when I was like 15, and that was the majority of Ohio was doing abstinence only education. I came out as a lesbian as 15. Now I identify as, I don't know, bisexual, queer, I go between different things. It doesn't matter so much to me now, but I taught myself a lot of that education, sexual health related education, because we were abstinence only and they were definitely not teaching about how gay people, you know, take care of their sexual health. After, while I was in college, I majored in psychology before changing to English. And so I was really, I became more and more interested in dating and relationship psychology, and especially after college. And one of the statistics that I think really hit me when I was in high school that kind of led to me getting into doing queer focused work were statistics about domestic violence and abuse within queer women relationships And bisexuals, between straight women, bisexual women, and lesbian women, bisexual women face, this was a 2010 CDC study. I was actually trying to find a new one the other day, was having trouble, but I, I would have been reading the 2010 when I was graduating high school. And they were, it was like 60... 4%, I would have to verify the study, but it was in the 60s, 60 something percent bisexual women deal with domestic violence, 50 something percent of lesbian women deal with domestic violence, and 40 something percent of straight women deal with domestic violence, obviously all bad, but bisexual and lesbian were dealing with it on higher, higher rates than straight women. And it was like, felt like this thing we can't talk about because we can't say that queer people ever abuse other queer people. And I became really interested in my mid twenties. I'm almost 30 now. (laughs) I'll be 30 in September with anti-assimilation. I felt like a lot of the queer community has focused on as a result of wanting to obtain rights like marriage, focused on being like as palpable as possible. Um, So saying we're just like you straight people, we want all the same things as you, we have the same kind of relationships, our life is the same. (laughs) And I think by doing that, we were limiting ourselves in seeing what are the things that we deal with that straight people don't. And what are the triumphs within queer relationships that are less found in straight relationships. And there are plenty of relationship and dating books by queer people, Ethical Slut is one opening up as one. Those are both about non-monogamy. But I found that a lot of the books I was seeing were still made for mass market. And I really wanted to be able to get 
therapists and psychologists and other professionals who have been working with the queer community for a long time to publish work who can say, hey, this is what's going on. Because in a lot of ways, we don't know all of what's going on, you know, and we don't know all of the ways to like name what we're dealing with in relationships. So that was what really got me focused on that. And I think also in the time of the dating apps and everything, we're really focused on, I'm really into bell hooks and the all about love and her ideas of consumerism playing such an effect on the way we look at romantic partners and we're like shopping for a partner. And I was just interested in what can I put out to kind of help with that. And the idea of eliminating the single queer story, I'll find a wrap up point in a second. That idea is like, Because I think with trying to be more palpable, there's also this focus, like all of the call out, all the call out stuff. And to me, I feel like there's this obsession with always like saying whatever the right thing is at whatever the moment is. And it's just like regurgitating a bunch of stuff. It's not necessarily like saying anything big. You're just like, who's better at saying what we've decided is right to say, but I think it limits us from having difficult conversations and actually like moving, pushing movements forward because we're just obsessed with how do we say it correctly so that we don't get yelled at online. Even as a black woman, I think I can relate to what you're saying even in my own community. You know, we also have to deal with intra-racial gun violence, Mm -hmm. right? Like, sure, cops are dreadful for killing unarmed Black men, and that has to stop, obviously. But we've also got to deal with gun violence in our own communities. Mm-hmm. And violence in our own communities. Right, but you always, like, want to be palpable and kind of, like, stay on message and, like, mm-hmm. not show things that are, frankly, hideous. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why um, Carmen Maria Mikado's book did so well is she just, she just talked mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And talked about the abuse. And it was... And it was shocking because, like, in a sense, she didn't stay on message, right? Mm-hmm. It was really, really good. Mm-hmm. That one's still on my list. I haven't read it, but I've heard great things. In this podcast called The New Yorker, The Writer's Voice, she reads one of the short stories. It will blow your socks off. It's amazing. Okay. Um, the one that, like, she does the one that's, like, a time loop. You might have heard of it. Like, because, you know she plays on that thing like when the domestic violence that you know just happens again like it never gets better right it happens again and it's again and it's again and the triggers are all really similar right mm-hmm. so not only is she talking about domestic violence and queer relationships she's also just being a masterful writer it's just it's like <laughs> mind blowing right mm-hmm. it's something so another thing that purple palm press which what you say you're doing explicitly is helping people to navigate careers in fields with a lot of gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. So the metaphor I was thinking about with gatekeeping is like the gate is transparent, but it's there. So you're kind of like throwing mud or paint on the gate Mm -hmm. so that everybody knows like there's definitely a gate here Mm -hmm. and a gatekeeper and we need to talk about that. So like, why do you think it's important to shine light on gatekeeping in people's careers? Well, I think because, well, specifically with queer people, they can be less likely to make make as much money as straight people. And race is obviously a huge part of this. So it's not simply queer people make less than straight people because sometimes they are making more than straight people. Um, But it depends on the field. And also I think that I get, so what would this idea was really inspired by 
part of it was that I have read a lot of business books because I have a business <laughs> and a lot of the more popular ones are written by straight white men. And I was finding that sometimes when I was recommending these books, no one wants to read. A lot of people don't want to read them where they're like, well, I can't resonate that with that. And I don't care what this guy says and blah, 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 blah. I wanted to read them because I'm like, well, they are making the money. Their businesses are successful. And part of that is because they're all giving each other the tools to be successful. And so I wanted to create books where it was, we're giving each other the tools. And I also think in my own career so far, which I think of as something that really only started like three-ish years ago, I have been learning as I go. And like, I've had mentors and I have people helping me along the way, but a lot of it is like, you really have no idea how it works until you're like trying to figure it out. And I think that a lot of people just don't even bother trying or it just feels so unattainable. But I think like all of these different creative industries, they're industries, there are ways to climb the ladder. (laughs) So I was interested in getting people within specific interest industries. I told you the first one that's going to come out in the series is about someone who's an art handler and a visual artist who will be explaining how to take a piece of art from conception to like showing in a gallery. Because they're, they've been an art handler and they went to an art school, they have all of this information that they've learned along the way. But like that a lot of people, unless they get in to one of these spaces, don't learn or like can't learn in the same way, I guess. Absolutely. That's it. That's perfect. And that all ties into the consumerism stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's great. I'm so glad that you're working on that uh, gatekeeping project. Mm-hmm. I'll say that I have two authors signed currently. So I guess I'll just kind of run through the quick history of Purple Palm. It started in August, 2018. Like I was saying early in the conversation about a year later, I started figuring out what the focus was going to be. And while recording Corona doesn't necessarily support what our focus was, but I just thought Elaine Schleifler came to me about that idea. And it just was such a weird time that it was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's do this. Even though it has not, doesn't have a lot to do with what, you know, the focus of Purple Palm is. And so I started by putting out my own series, Pendive, and I saw that as like a way to practice publishing, like, you know, practice getting work with a printer. Uh, my friend is a design, but taking a, taking a piece from conception to out in the world. And then the anthology, the breakup book does support our mission that came out in September, 2019. And then now during the pandemic, I've been able to, because there aren't in-person events and a lot of things I need to be at, I've been able to buckle down and work on the business plan of Purple Palm Press and, you know, narrow in on the mission and sign our first two major authors. One will be doing a poetry book that will be focused on body acceptance. I want to just keep pretty much pretty broad on what the topics are until there, you know, more information is released. And the other will be focusing on trauma in the queer community and specifically within the Black queer community. And both of those books will be out in 2023. So in the meantime, I'm hoping to put out some smaller, um, shorter books, but I'm also just interested in continuing to gain the audience. And I also want to say that I will be speaking virtually at the National Stonewall Museum in Florida on May 13th at 6 p.m., Thursday, May 13th. And it's free and people can register by going to stonewall-museum.org. Cool. Stonewall-museum.org. That's pretty exciting. Actually, this um, you're talking actually remind me of 
one of my first conversations with you. So this is what was going on inside of Loganberry, since we're talking about business. So what is Loganberry? So basically for a publisher, we're distribution, right? Mm -hmm. So I had Pendive on display. People were picking it up. People were flipping the pages, but not everyone who touched it was buying it. Mm. (laughs) So I think I called you. I don't even know if you remember this conversation. And I said, because how much, how much is Pendive an issue? It's $14.99, right? It it was $10. I actually lowered it. You did lower it. Mm. And I was like, Lou, I think that if you lower the price, people are going to buy this Mm -hmm. because people are clearly interested. What they were backing away was from the price point. And you said to me, you're like, I'm a publishing company. I'm testing the model. (laughs) And I totally remember that. And I remember thinking like, okay, she's testing the model. Like this is the pilot. Uh Let's see how the pilot goes. Like don't abandon it. Let's see how the pilot turns out. Mm -hmm. I bring that up too, because like, if you're kind of talking about like people of color and queer people and you know, the whole entrepreneurial thing and establishing businesses, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we set our prices too low. Mm -hmm. I think that's very much a real thing. So I think that it was kind of interesting to say, like, let's see if things work out at Mm -hmm. the higher price point. And for, I mean, you may have lowered your prices, but at Loganberry, we didn't lower ours and it sold at that price point. Oh, it did? That's great to know. It sold at that price point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I priced it at $10 initially, I felt like $10 was totally fair for the level of design that was in it. The reason I eventually decided that I would lower it was, well, actually I lowered it once all five were out, like all five issues and I'll be printing an anthology. So I I hope to do a second volume and I may charge to do still charge 10, but I would have some people at zine fairs, like look at it and be like, oh, cool. How much is it? And $10 and they like throw it on the table. (laughs) But, (laughs) but also like a lot of independent smaller presses will charge things a little higher because, you know, they're a smaller business. And the printing cost is really high. Right. 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 It is very expensive to print. I actually really appreciate learning that you're working on a business plan right now and you're testing your model and things are working out for you. And actually you, you do really have great content. We are talking to Lou Barrett of Purple Palm Press. It's always wonderful talking to you. You too. Thank you so much. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at Loganberry Books, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening. <laughs>